very much for having inviting me, and uh, I am really delighted to have the possibility to present a little bit of work of uh, the Georg Eckert Institute for International Textbook Research and its role in the reconciliation process and the process of textbook revision research and production. I will use one minute, okay, one minute to make an a little bit advertising for the Institute. The Institute has grown from a research library. It is the reference library and research center of the Council of Europe for History and Geography textbooks since 1965. Uh, and here you have a look on our, uh, on what we have collected in our library. And this is something we are, we are welcoming researchers uh, from Europe and many other countries regularly working in our library. My presentation, this is the minute my presentation is structured, I will quickly um, raise or three questions once. Which windows of opportunities for, co for collaborative uh, production of education in media uh, for European education in schools we can find since uh, the beginning of the textbook revision process in Europe in uh, the 1950s. My second point is when experience in B and multilateral textbooks projects. You can see here uh, three examples, the European textbook, the Deluge project, and to the two uh, very, let's say, real textbooks, bilateral textbooks, the German, French, and the German, Polish textbook. And my third point, if, a, if it's an important one, is chances and difficulties for Participative education and media production. I will start with my third point. With my first point, um, textbook revision and these collaborative projects. Um, we started with teacher initiatives, and these teacher initiatives, um, the first uh, bilateral conference, uh, which is in a certain way the beginning of uh, our institute, was a bilateral conference with the historical association. It's seventy years ago in. Already in 1949, uh, German teachers organized the first conference with British history teachers with the Historical Association, and this is in a certain way the beginning of the uh, work uh, on textbook revision and research at our institute. In the 1950s and 60s, the, the institute became part of uh, these European teacher initiatives within the Council of Europe. And these teacher initiatives, we developed uh, textbook revision to, uh, we, we developed it into a process really producing results. And uh, the end marked uh, a conference with the uh, development of the first European history core curriculum. And perhaps I can uh, come back to it later. Here, my point is what uh, seven countries participated in this first round of uh, history textbook revision uh, done by the Council of Europe, uh, bringing together teachers from different cultures of teachers. If you know, headmasters in, of, of British uh, schools before the national, long before the national curriculum, inspecteur general in France and German gymnasial teachers bringing together when we published together uh, the results. And the results were, of course, translated in the languages of the seven participating countries, including Turkey and Greece at the time. But this was the philosophy at a time of these Council of Europe's projects concerning a mutual recognition of culture, where 
the results should be translated not only in British, in, in, in English and in French, but in the languages of all participating communities. My second point is 60s, 70s, crossing and missing collaborative production of education in media in Europe. There is a very important point. Drivers in the 60s and 70s came from the educational television production. And this, I called it crossing and missing because the Council of Europe continued textbook revision, but he gave up history education at the end of the 60s and he switched over to civics. And so the experience of the first round of uh, history textbook revision uh, got lost, and also the, the, core, core, the core curriculum fell asleep until the, the year 1991 with the British conference on history for the new Europe. It, it, it reappeared, or it was recycled in a certain way. In the 1970s, uh, education and television uh, was the great project, was on stake. Uh, it, it was a, a, a German... Um, journalist and federalist uh, Dumont de Voitel, who was at the time one of the leading figures of the, of the direction of information uh, of the European Commission, and he initiated uh, the foundation of the Comité Européen de Télévision Scolaire, the French name, the, the, the project was coined using the French name because it was also an initi initiative of the French uh, education and television uh, we were very much ahead at the time, together with the BBC, and they, they, we developed, and this is very important for me, we developed real collaborative production of educational television, and they hoped, and the many European politicians hoped, that these collaborative projects would structure a common European core curriculum for history and for civics. Because these television... Uh, I, I can later on, because I don't have so much time now, I can later on go in more detail in the topics. But what is important at the time is what, what uh, media producers from the member countries of the European Union produce together, really together, a common educational uh, television uh, series which should structure uh, history teaching and civics teaching in Europe. And of course, it, it, the, the, this project uh, came to an end at a moment, uh, and I can quote Sergeant Schreiber for, for, for France, in which the technology of educational television lost its fight against digital media. That means the old technology was not developed further and the project stopped. My second, or, or the, the last point here, in 1990s is, uh, or 1991, starting with the a British conference on history education for a new Europe, uh, we had really a, a very sustainable group for a decade working together between uh, the Council of Europe, uh, the EU Story Project, our institute, EuroCleo, and what is an important point for me here is what the European Educational Publishers Group uh, has been included in the project for a decade, because we have a problem actually that the European Educational Publishers Group is uh, awarding a textbook award, a very innovative textbook award, the Belma Award, some of us, uh, of you may know, it's the best uh, educational learning material award, and this is something which happened actually 
independently from, for instance, the textbook award we are awarding at the Institute, that means bringing together people from the publishing industry, from the teachers, the associations, and from research, this, uh, with this uh, very successful collaboration ended someone about 2000 and uh, was not uh, continued. My second point is uh, experiences in B and multilateral textbook projects. Uh, here, the Institute contributed in a great number of B and multilateral textbooks, one of the most important one outside Europe or outside inside Europe we can discuss is the Israeli-Palestine uh, textbook of the Peace Institute, uh, Peace Research Institute of the Middle East. It's the prime textbook. It's, it's a narrative uh, you have, uh, or, or, or in, in terms of didactics, you have one narrative, it's the Palestinian narrative, you have one narrative, it's the Israeli narrative, and you have empty space in the middle for students or teachers to compare the two narratives. Unfortunately, um, this textbook uh, wasn't approved uh, neither by the Palestine Authority <laughs> nor by the uh, Israeli state authorities, and so we didn't get funding to, to test it, its, let's say, its effects in what we, we, we would like to have to discuss it or, or to do in an experimental space with students from Israel and from Palestine, but we didn't get it funny because people said if, if, the, if the, the, the textbook hasn't been approved. Much more successful are our European projects in content, let's see, as, as a project in itself. Um, and I can give perhaps later on in the discussion some. Um, examples of, uh, uh, let's say, really, I, I, the added value, we can see where is added value in these bilateral textbook projects. There is much added value we, we, we can see. I, I can give some examples later because time is running a little bit. And I, what, what I wanted to say in my last point is, this is the last publication. It's a digital textbook last publication of the Council of Europe, um, 2014, share, shared histories uh, for Europe without dividing lines, and for me it's uh, very interesting because I'm coming from economic history where the topics are industrial revolution and, and another topic I find very uh, important or very interesting is human rights as uh, presented in uh, arts history. And this brings me to my uh, uh, conclusions because the, the textbook was very, much, was, was very much criticized especially also from colleagues from southeastern Europe and from Eastern Europe because they said all these topics, industrial revolution, which, which topics which topic, uh, uh, did not fit at all our curriculum because our curriculum is about war, it's about uh, political history, it's about uh, national history, and it's not about uh, the, the success story or non-success story of, 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 of the Industrial Revolution as a point of uh, common heritage. Digital media um, are offering for us new possibilities for, participative, for participative learning or perhaps participative uh, production of textbooks. Uh, and in, in this sense, perhaps we can even discuss further uh, Timothy Garden Eich's uh, proposal of a kaleidoscope, and perhaps by producing units with, with special themes, 
reconstructing a curriculum, a new European curriculum, but uh, by using these um, uh, different elements of a kaleidoscope like bricks. But uh, one of the decisions is curriculum planners have to speak together and we have a problem or two problems where there's no harmonization or there's any dialogue between curriculum planners in the different European countries at the moment and we need, or I'm convinced, we need also a, a dialogue between curriculum planners in the humanities and social sciences, in the field of humanities and social sciences. I come to an end, yeah? Okay. Uh, because uh, there is very much competition and hardship competition between the disciplines in school, between history and, 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 and in civics, for instance, between how many hours should be attributed to geography uh, in comparison to history and so on. And my second point is one, one of the most important challenges is the differential in contemporaneous. It's, I quoted it from uh, Sidney Pollard, a, a, a British author. <laughs> You may know Peaceful Conquest, his bestseller or his masterpiece, but I like the differ differential in contemporaneous, what means uh, in, in the culture of teaching and learning, and there is a great deal uh, to do how to translate uh, different uh, philosophies of learning uh, within the different European countries in order to make perhaps a, a new common core curriculum uh, or a kaleidoscope in digital media possible. Thank you very much. Thank you. This museum opened its doors two years ago, in May 2017, and it was not the first idea, the first idea to explain Europe in a museum, but the first history museum, permanent history museum that was realized. Um, and I start by introducing some of the differences uh, in the process of making this narrative with writing a book. First of all, who creates the narrative? Making a museum involves interdisciplinary teamwork. All in all, 52 people worked on the museum throughout the development phase, and that's only the core team. On top of those, one needs to count the designers and producers, the architects conceiving the building, the academic committee and board of trustees, 100 translators to provide 24 language versions, <coughs> and many other actors in the European Parliament uh, administration who is our uh, funder. Making a museum is therefore an immensely complex process, a mix of teamwork and individual historians' content research and object research, and even more complex in our case with 18 nationalities in the team. A museum is also, uh, should be an experience for all senses, so that's a difference from a book, uh, working for the intellect but also for emotions. And it is a spatial narrative. And here you, you see the museum building, and you, you can see easily how complex it is to adapt um, historical content to this uh, reality of a space. Uh, we have 4,000 square meters brutto for the permanent exhibition space. That's the five upper floors of this building, as I will show. But this is very small um, when it comes to showing the complexity of European history. Finally, the question, a museum for whom? A narrative for whom? Uh, this is just an uh, overview of the origins of our visitors uh, over the past, over the first month, um, so July to December last year actually, that's when we started counting. So you see that uh, there is no easy to grasp community for this museum as there might be in a local museum. Uh, the first expert paper from 2008 said that this narrative should be for all Europeans and it added for interested laymen, so not for historians. And one can easily imagine how difficult it is to conceive one historical narrative for people with so different expectations against the background of contested histories, memory conflicts, 
and the primacy of national history in oral history teaching. Focus group studies that we conducted prior to the uh, making of this narrative showed that uh, knowledge about European history was extremely limited uh, in our potential visitors. You can imagine already knowledge of national history is limited in the general population, but European history even more. So therefore, to facilitate orientation in the space, we have chosen a chronothematic approach. And here I'm showing you the layout of the narrative. Um, how was it developed? We arrived and we start here from level two and move up to level six for the permanent exhibition. Uh, we started off with brainstormings where we had 300 different topics that could be addressed in this exhibition and you can easily see that this is not possible. So we broke it down um, over a very lengthy process involving exhibition designers and producers um, and of course the team of curators. We came um, to six themes broken down into 24 topics. Um, and they are here, this is a chronological narrative, so chronological so that laymen can orientate in space. Uh, the the um, narrative line, the movement in space was changed uh, after an intervention by our academic committee because they thought architects had foreseen to drive up and walk down, but uh, the academic committee thought that that would be too uh, pessimistic because it would mean uh, history would finish in the basement. Um, so the whole uh, uh, line was, was turned around so you see how an exhibition narrative has to work with the space. So you see how they basically the, the content is about 19th and 20th century history, Europe's, travel to, Europe's journey to modernity, with a, starting with a prologue addressing principal questions about Europe, but then from uh, the third level onwards, um, 19th century, uh, the descent into the um, totalitarians, war and death, uh, sorry, wars and the mass death in the 20th century, and then the rebuilding of Europe after 1945. And then and there is a, a small narrative about European integration history as I will show. Um, this slide shows you that uh, the museum does not juxtapose national histories. That's what people often think. They think we have a Lithuanian room next to a Polish room, etc. But that's not the case. It's a transnational overview. Um, and the themes were selected according to those criteria. Um, processes which, have, um, which are originally European have spread all across the continent and are considered relevant until today. How is the story being told? Compared to most other museums that you know, um, <coughs> the museum is a narrative one, uh, that's the technical term. Uh, the storyline was developed first and then the objects were selected to convey the story. And here you see how uh, we try to bring objects together from many different museums across <coughs> Europe, a very tedious task. And these objects in the exhibition function together with other elements, with exhibition texts on a 24 languages tablet, uh, all in all, um, just to give you a comparison with the book, only, only for us who were writing only 140 pages of A4 texts. So that's not a lot of uh, text to convey complexity, uh, but that's what we thought a visitor can digest. Um, and then 2.5 hours of films, all in all, audio stations, interactive stations, and finally the scenography with its different emotions, soundscapes, and lights. But the main question was, if we need to create an easy-to-understand narrative for laymen, how can we address the complexity? And I will just give you some, um, some of the tools we used. First, in the first space, we confront uh, the visitors with questions such as, what is Europe? Can it be geographically defined? We've heard um, talking about this this morning. Um, and the showcases in this section basically demonstrate that the way Europe is seen depends on the eye of the beholder, on the time period that Europe is looked at and on the geographical standpoint from which uh, he, or, he or she judges. So we ask many questions, especially at the beginning, and we don't claim to present uh, finished 
certitudes about what Europe is. Then the exhibition is layered. Uh, for a layman who has 90 minutes, that's the average museum visit, you will see big uh, scenography with films and you will see uh, big objects. And then there, is, um, there are different layers which um, museum visitors who have more interest can explore. And one visitor stayed one week, he came back five days, and then he wrote in the Golden Book, now I've seen it all. So you can see that the exhibition content is very rich and layered. Then there is differentiation. Um, the national history and the historical events uh, from a national point of view are addressed um, sometimes via ju juxtaposition, as you see here for 1989. This is a series of TV shows from 1989, um, uh, illustrating like a chain of events, the, the events uh, of the fall of the Iron Curtain. And on the other side, you see um, as another uh, the, the, the objects here from, from the Baltics or from Romania, which uh, tell the same story. Then the exhibition allows also for different narratives, which we are actually now um, trying to find out with guided tours and to, uh, to, to make visible. Here you see that there is a different narrative about European integration history milestones, and it's embedded in, a wider, in the context of wider Europe. And we can track uh, or trace uh, different topics like migration history, uh, or um, protest movements, or the history of human rights. Through the exhibition we can follow them and we can develop educational material from that. And then finally, sometimes conflicting views uh, on, for example, on the Maastricht Treaty, on the financial crisis, we try to address uh, controversial issues when they, when they arose. And then we use the concept of memory to address different ways of dealing with the past. And this is a kind of recurring theme in the exhibition that addresses how, memory, how memories of the past are different, how they can be misused, and what are the techniques uh, used for that. Now, the final question, does the audience get the story? Um, and here, uh, what we see after two years is, generally speaking, if you look at TripAdvisor, Google Reviews, etc., you will see that the museum has extremely high satisfaction rates among the visitors. However, this hides a much more complex reality. Um, the qualitative reactions to the museum, although they are mostly very enthusiastic, they also show an extreme diversity of expectations toward, towards a historical narrative about Europe. And this diversity is not only linked to the historical content, so what people expect to see, sometimes national history, their own national history, uh, certain events or certain themes that are close to their, <coughs> to their heart or to their, um, the way they've learned history, but also to the way of dealing with history. So this critical approach that we have uh, is labeled as, by some as too German, as being too German, that we should rather be celebratory. But this is clear that you see the culture of his, history museums is very different across Europe and this influences the, the ways visitors look at it. And then finally, even the language, the visual language used in the museum, some people expect a very different visual language than, than what we have here. So, um, summing up, the museum shows the, the, how the different expectations um, come, how they, actually they become apparent when, when we see the visitors' comments. And based on this experience, I would plea um, to introduce more of a meta level, more of a reflection about the narrative. Uh, what are the different expectations of the public? Um, how are the stories perceived? How, how should they be told? And here definitely from our research into museum studies or sociology uh, looking into um, how museum visitors behave, emotions is a very important tool. Um, that's uh, it's one of the findings of, of recent research that museums do change worldviews when the, when the visitors are emotionally touched uh, and not only intellectually. 
And then I would suggest um, juxtaposing different narratives, and this is something that I would like to discuss uh, for our museum as well. How could we show that on top of this interpretation there can be hundreds others, um, and uh, how could we become aware of the different perceptions of history around Europe? So I think that it could be useful to um, not only have a narrative space, that's how I started off, but to create spaces for narratives. And this is what we are trying to do. You see here uh, that we invited different filmmakers, poets and historians uh, from 10 different uh, European countries, maybe Central Eastern Europe, to guide in our exhibition. And each one of them gave their own story, their own narrative, based on our objects, based on our content. But this content is open for interpretation. So I think creating these spaces, these methodologies, these opportunities for uh, debate is what we should do. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me here at such a brilliant conference. And thank you so much for giving me a kind of self-realisation that I have never had before, which is that I'm an old man, according to the Chatham House survey, as I came out as a federalist. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you about the kind of story, how the story of Europe is told in theatre. And I'm an interested party. I'm someone making a theatre production about Europe. Our question is, what is Europe? I work for Dash Arts, which is a London-based theatre company, for a director called Tim Supple. And we work on big multilingual projects. So his first project for this company was a multilingual production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in nine different Indian languages. How we're building this production about Europe is by holding workshops across different European cities. And in them, we ask actors to bring material which answers three different questions. The first question is, what ancient myth is most relevant in understanding Europe today? The second question is, which historical date is most important in understanding Europe? And the third is, what is the most important contemporary political narrative to understand Europe today? So when we started this project, we had our own three answers. We had the Rape of Europa, which Calypso already mentioned. We had 1683 as our date, which was mentioned yesterday, I think, Turks at the Gates of Vienna. And we had the narrative that the EU was created to stop total war and violence and nationalism as our contemporary political narrative. However, we realized we're two theatre makers from London, and these are just our responses. So we wanted to diversify, to find out responses from different places. We wanted more, what, in Timothy Garden Ash's words, cacophony, perhaps. However, in doing so, what we didn't realize is that we've fallen into exactly the same pattern as all of the other big productions about Europe that have happened in the last five years which is a pattern that I would call losing the plot. <laughs> what I mean by that is none of the big productions about Europe have had a narrative thread or any of the typical tools that we have in theatre, like dialogue, character arcs, or even actors learning their lines. <laughs> I'm going to talk about three plays that are particularly representative of this. The first is by Ivo van Hove, who is a Belgian director and he made a production called Recreating Europe in 2016. The second is called The Europa Trilogy by Milo Rao, which came out from 2014 to 2016. And the third is called Everything That Has Happened and Will Happen by Heine Goebbels, which came out last year. So, in Ivor Van Hove's Recreating Europe, uh, the material that he uses are speeches. So these are speeches that were influential and important in building Europe's history. The way that these speeches become theatre is by actors reading them from a podium, with scripts. There's no dialogue, there's no interaction, there's no character arcs. There's just actors reading text. The speeches range from Ayn Rand to Churchill to Obama to Timothy Garton Ash, who are featured. Um, 
But what's important here is that this play had no plot. So that's our first play without a plot. Milo Rao's Europa Trilogy. What's his material? What he uses are real stories, biographies, of people he's chosen from across Europe. He was looking for actors, and he chose different actors who he thought were allegories in some way of Europe. So stories which were stories of migration, mostly. He puts them in different parts of his trilogy, four different actors, in one set location, very naturalistic. A kitchen in the first part, a podium, interestingly, in the second part, and a living room in the third part. But despite all being in one space, there's no dialogue, the actors just give their monologue, and there's no interaction or event. No characters, no interaction, no dialogue, no event. Second play, without a plot. In our third play, by Heine Goebbels, everything has happened and will happen. This is taken to a new level. So his sources are Euronews, the no comment section of Euronews, I don't know if you know it, but it's uh, clips made mostly by smartphones of different European news, but without any mediation. Then the other source is Patrick Arodnik's Europeana, which I'm sure you know as well, but this is a history which is subjective, objective history. Objective in that it amasses loads and loads of facts, like the heights of soldiers, but subjective in that it chooses a particular narrative of how to shape it, which is one which is completely fragmentary and completely non-chronological. So with these two sources, how does this become theatre? In a big warehouse in Manchester, there are a bunch of actors who move loads of stuff from one side of a room to the other side of a room for three hours. And then there are a couple of people who are reading uh, extracts from Europeana, non-chronologically, and then you also have John Cage's Europeras, which are five different operas, which are fragments of the European opera canon being played uh, interspersedly. No characters, no dialogue, no events, no plot. In the words of the New York Times review about this show, it wasn't clear what connected these dis disparate moments, or if anything linked them at all. So these are three plays that don't have a narrative or a plot, or in Aristotle's term, a mythos. Why is this? Why is it then we talk about Europe that this happens? Is it because what a mythos requires, unity of time, unity of place, unity of action, are exactly the things that Europe lacks? In a play about Europe, where should we place it? What day should we put it on? And what events should we recount? So what the moving art of drama can show us, what perhaps a, a visual representation of Europe can't, is that we can't tell these stories, but also shows us perhaps why. We're very used to seeing a static image of Europe, of Europe condensed into a map, a graphic, a bit of data. But when we put it in time, we see where the problems start. And this is because we don't have any of the three key ingredients for a story. Where it takes place, when it begins and ends, and what happens. Essentially, what the story is at all. So I start my work on this project in September at the Young And then we got to Leeds and Liverpool and Coventry, Paris, Berlin, Milan, Stockholm, and Athens. But my question is, how can I do this without uh, falling into these same traps, without falling into cacophony, <laughs> fragmentation, without replicating this structure of network information rather than narrative? So perhaps to answer the question that Timothy asked uh, on the first day of this conference, what kinds of methods we should use to understand what narratives, we might need to go back to the earliest Western explication of these methods, which is the oldest poetics in the book. So I'd like to end with a question for the floor, which we can discuss in questions or afterwards, which is, if we had to choose to tell a story about Europe, one place, one day, one event, what would it be? Thank you. Thank you, Tim and 
to all of your team for organizing this wonderful conference and for letting us being part of, of it. Uh, I feel so incredibly boring after this, uh, after this last question. And uh, usually we do not experience a burning interest in the work of grant-making foundations and how they do that. But I want to um, start with saying we have the task of distributing money. And by that influence and opportunities and voice to as many people as possible uh, for uh, a united Europe, for uh, Europe uh, capable of acting, for a, a cohesive uh, uh, Europe. And that's quite a task, and it has become way more difficult, uh, way more complicated, uh, and we have become more serious about it in the last years. We also work as a foundation on climate change, on integration and migration, on Turkey, on China, and all of these uh, uh, topics have become way more politicized. And we see that in member states and in countries like Turkey, colleagues from ours who do exactly the work that we do are indicted or sitting in jail uh, for the work that they do, uh, Osman Kavala and his uh, friends and colleagues. Uh, and this, we feel more responsibility to use the money that we have uh, in, a, in a good and productive way. We are practitioners, so we are not so much into the business of creating narratives or seeing a role of ourselves in creating narratives. We see our role mostly in, um, in providing spaces, platforms for Europeans to tell each other their stories. And I want to give you a couple of examples how we, how we do that. So, we, we, as a foundation, we have 400 running projects. Uh, uh, we have approximately 100 projects in our Europe portfolio uh, with, a, with a running budget of around 100 million euro. Um, to give you the, the scope of what we do, we do research funding, we do think tank funding, we do civil society funding, uh, we have uh, fellowship programs, leadership programs, and civic education programs. For us, it gets particularly interesting if we bridge uh, the sectors. So if we bring together policymakers with civil society, if we bring together think tanks with young people, if we bring together academicians with policymakers, and we, we see a role in that, and we see a lack of that happening. Um, one example of, of what we do is, uh, I've got three or four, four, four examples, um, after the uh, Euro crisis, we, we were under the impression that, particularly in Germany, Bavarian conservatives talked a lot about Greece uh, without having met uh, Greece politicians or having been to uh, Greece. Uh, so we decided to start uh, a project in the Council of European Dialogue where we bring together uh, parliamentarians from the national parliaments of the member states. Um, there's a plenary session with 40 to 50 the parliamentarians uh, from last time was 21 countries uh, and we have small field trips uh, uh, or, or shorter uh, workshops uh, with, with smaller numbers and I remember one field trip to Lesbos where we invited a small group of parliamentarians to you know get a, get a, a view on what's happening on the Greek islands uh, it was interesting that, you know, uh, Irish MP said, you know, you should invite, you know, someone who has more interest in that and who's closer to the topic. And we said, no, you should, you know, you should, uh, it, it's also a topic that should concern you. And afterwards, that was, 
the impression of the whole group that was worthwhile going there. Interestingly, we do this project together with four think tanks, uh, Elia Mepsidov, EIE in Rome, and uh, uh, German Marshall Fund. For the think tanks, it has become one of the most effective tools in communicating their work, meeting and working with those parliamentarians. And we started off not by asking, what do you think about Germany's fiscal policy, but by asking, why are you a politician? What is your view on Europe? And that is highly interesting. Uh, and there's a lack of these kind of spaces uh, in now. Um, second example I want to give is, is a, a, um, based on the assumption we should be problem solvers. We should be, you know, credible and knowledgeable about the, in the fields that we are working in. Uh, and uh, uh, we experience in, in our fellowship programs with young fellows that, of course, the topic of youth unemployment is a big issue uh, in Europe. But um, we are not labor market experts. Uh, we do have an ex expertise in education uh, programs. In the rural area where we are based, uh, which is a you know, disadvantaged area of Germany, we have started a, a multi-stakeholder collective impact project called Wolf for Tour, where we bring together, and that's a highly complicated area, uh, universities, uh, cities, the, the government of the, the Land, the Bundesland of Westphalia, uh, um, the, the, the education administration of that region, schools, kindergartens. And for the first time, this group uh, um, set uh, themselves joint goals for the region and for the educational space uh, of the rural area. We thought that might be a good idea uh, also to do, for example, in Italy in, uh, or, or in Greece. And so we did a feasibility study and we, 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 we uh, have chosen uh, Apulia to be a good region to do this kind of uh, uh, a project, collective impact uh, project, with Italian foundations, with the Italian government, uh, uh, and creating structures uh, of the local stakeholders to improve the education system. And again, here we tried also to bring in academicians, think tankers, uh, uh, practitioners from other regions in Europe, and we think you know we created a space in which Europeans can exchange uh, knowledge. Um, I can go on and give you short introductions of our 400 projects if you, uh, if you, if you want so. Uh, I, um, uh, our experience is, you know, um, we recently had Robin Niblett from Chatham House uh, uh, invited into our foundation and he, he, you know, he wrote this paper on the future of think tanks and he said, you know, we think tanks, um, um, we, we we are part of the problem uh, as we have uh, for a long time stressed the positive aggregated impacts of globalization too much. And the thing that we want to avoid, and I think you know, those rich foundations, private foundations, may have the same problem. Um, we do not want it to be perceived as the megaphones of a, a cosmopolitan elite but as credible problem solvers. We've had long conversations with our friends from uh, Open Society that have moved from Budapest now to Berlin uh, on exactly that topic, how, how we should act differently. And, um, you know, um, I think there's a fine line when we give these different groups of Europeans the space to exchange their ideas and their stories in Europe. Um, 
there is a legitimate room for criticism of the European Union and of the political systems we live in. Um, I live in Berlin. People have the right to be frustrated about the political outputs of, of, uh, of, um, of, of the government. Um, and we should, we should find a constructive way in solving the problems, uh, bringing to the table as many people as possible, and that's, that's what, we, what we do. One example of how we try to do things differently is, is a recent example uh, 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 before the European elections. Um, we uh, decided that you know, this time we should, we should do a Get Your Vote Out campaign in our home city of Essen. Um, usually we do work, you know, nationally or even Europe-wide, Europe but, but we do very few things in essence. Uh, and so we thought, you know, we should raise the participation rate in the elections, you know, in our city. And we have worked together now with uh, small and medium-sized companies, with Igimtal, the largest union there. We have worked with uh, Arbeiter Wohlfahrt, which is a you know, welfare organization. Um, we have worked with the city council, uh, and that was for our team members extremely interesting to talk to trade union members, uh, to talk to small companies that may have a production site in, in Hungary or Poland. Uh, and I think it's exactly that kind of work that we as, as, as foundation should do. Should do more because those conversations are very different from the conversations we have here, but those people are uh, convinced Europeans as well. Uh, and, and this is why I think, again, uh, creating spaces uh, uh, where different sectors meet, where different stories can be told, is, is, is extremely important. Thank you.